If you have your Bibles here, please would you turn with me to the book of Colossians. If you're joining us for the first time, it's a New Testament book, right slap bang in the middle. Uh, it's a short book, but what we have been doing as a church is we have been going through this book verse by verse and in that way allowing God to speak to us. And as much as this book was written 2,000 years ago, God's Word has been made alive to us. And many of you have fed back to me just how God's voice has been so loud to you uh, throughout the series of Colossians. And uh, you've joined us at a good time. Um, what we've been doing as a church for the last three weeks is we've been having a very important conversation, a tough conversation, but a conversation called Killing Sin. And, and some of you are like, whew, I'm so glad I haven't been here for the last few weeks. Uh, but, but here is God's love. He knows what brings destruction in your life. We don't always know that. And He's saying, as an act of love, allow my voice to speak into your life. Allow me to deal with these issues, these issues that have been dealt with by Jesus. Invite my power in my presence into your life and let's deal with these issues. Not that we walk away from church feeling like spanked children, but rather we are invited into life as we deal with sin. And in many ways, that conversation sets the platform for every other conversation we're gonna have throughout the course of the book of Colossians. Because just as a bit of an update, the way the book starts is not 40 things to do and 40 things not to do. The way the book starts is Paul makes much of Jesus. He says, this is who Jesus is. This is his sovereignty. This is what he has done for you. This is his final victory on the cross. This is his resurrection life. And then he dives into a whole network of very practical issues. And his assumption is this. If this is true about Jesus, it needs to make a difference in your life. All right, it needs to make a difference. The gospel, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus has to impact your life. It has to impact your life with regards to sin and every single issue after that. So with regards to today's topic and any topic that we speak about now, we are gonna be confronted with the very same issues. Do I or do not I not truly believe the gospel? All right, and how is it gonna impact me? How am I gonna change my thinking? If this is how I think on a particular subject, am I willing to lay that down and set my thoughts on thoughts above? Am I gonna lay my desires down and pray for new desires in my heart? Am I gonna put off certain things? And am I gonna put on certain things? So we're gonna continue the conversation that we've been having in the last few weeks. Now, speaking about sinful tendencies, there is no environment in the world that highlights our sinful ten ten tendencies like marriage, right? I heard the other day that marriage is like a, a, a walk in the park, Jurassic Park, all right? And um, because here's the thing, you know, in the movies, it's all like, oh, you complete me and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, when you get married, you realize you married a sinner who's married to an even bigger sinner, Right, because all the things that made sense to you when you were single or living with your mom who made you coffee every morning and picked up your underpants, suddenly those same tendencies are brought into marriage and suddenly you, you realise, wow, this is not okay and there's somebody living in my house who's not okay with these things. And what starts to get highlighted are often genuine sinful issues. Habits and patterns of thinking and behaviors that are destructive to your relationship with your spouse, are destructive to your relationship with your family, with yourself and with God. 
And God uses His environment of marriage to highlight these issues. So marriage is a beautiful factory of holiness, but it is also can be a very difficult environment because of that. So there are genuine sinful issues, harmful issues, and then there are issues which you may initially interpret as wrong and maybe need to be reinterpreted. These are issues, these are the kinds of issues, like for example, do you squeeze the toothpaste tube from the middle or the bottom? Now we, I know that's such a cliched thing, like literally Bianca and I have had that discussion dozens of times throughout our marriage. Our solution, two different toothpaste tubes, you're welcome. <laughs> you see, in that case, it's not a sinful issue. Our tendency though, is when we come across someone who does things differently to us, is to interpret that as wrong. Our default is to interpret the way I do things as the best way. All right, now you've got two people in the marriage who interpret my way is the best way. Now, can you see how that is just setting us up for difficulty, right? And again, some of the issues are less important, like toothpaste tubes. Just by the way, the correct answer is from the bottom, just in case you are wondering. <laughs> but then there are issues that are important. I mean, what I've had to discover about my wife is that there are things she does that are very different to me that at first I interpreted were wrong and are not wrong, but are different. And are not just different, but are good. Different, but good. And the way she engages God is different to how I engage with God, but it's good. And the way she deals with conflict can be different to how I engage with conflicts, but it can be good. And the way she processes a parenting can be different to how I always process parenting, but it is good. Now, not only is this impulse to see other people's different ways of doing things as bad, not only is that true in marriage, that is true in all of life. That is true in work, that is true in business, that is especially true in school, right? Which is why the jocks who get all the girls and are good looking and good at sports, they feel superior to everybody else. All right, and the academics feel more superior to everybody else because they can count past 100. And I think the only winners in that game, by the way, are the psychologists 30 years later who have the jocks and the academics on their couches for uh, <laughs> therapy. And today God is gonna challenge that instinct within us to see not sinful behaviors as sin, but neutral behaviors or things that are us and we see them differently in other people and our default is to say that's wrong. And God is gonna challenge us to say, no, 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 it's different, but good. It's different, but good. Now, as we approach the verse, and it's, um, it's chapter three, verse 11 in Colossians. As we approach this verse, we're gonna read that together. We need to recognize, as I alluded to before, that this comes off the back of a whole conversation around the gospel. And the implication is this, do you truly believe the gospel. You see, most people here can articulate the gospel in some form. Some form are Jesus loves me and he died for my sin. All right, and, and some of you may be able to articulate that to your children or to your spouse or to your colleagues. And in fact, if somebody you know, comes up with a bit of a, a different gospel, you may be even able to spot a different gospel. But the question not only is, do you believe the gospel with your mind, but has the gospel penetrated your heart? Has it changed your life? 
So here's a bit of a diagnostic question for you. There was a very famous kind of a evangelism technique, which is just helping and equipping people to share their faith called EE3. And the opening question went something like this. You'd knock on people's door and uh, can we have a conversation about you know, spiritual matters? Yes, you can. Um, the first question is this. If you died tonight, how do you know you would go to heaven? Now, that's a very important question. And that's a question I think we need to be able to answer. And just by the way, the answer is chapter one of, of uh, the book of Colossians in halfway of chapter two. The answer is the gospel. It is Jesus. It is not my good works. It is not the fact that I'm awesome. It is the fact that Jesus has paid for my sin in full and now he gives me his life. That's the answer to that question. But here's an equally important question. What if you didn't die tonight? And what if you woke up tomorrow morning how would you know if the gospel has transformed you? See, the gospel is not only concerned with life after death. The gospel is concerned with life before death as well. And if anything, the evidence that the gospel is gonna bring me into eternal life is gonna be in how I live this life now. So the, the assumption in the book of Colossians is if, listen, here's the gospel of who Jesus is and what he has done and accomplished in his life, death and resurrection. Here's what it looks like in practical life. If none of this makes sense to you, you need to go back here. And you need to determine if in fact you have accepted Christ, not as some God out there, but as someone who saves you and transforms you. And that is no more true than the topic we're gonna be speaking about today. Now, um, what we've been doing is, is just trying to bring you back into the, some of the context of this book. Paul is writing to a real church located in the middle of what is now known as modern day Turkey, Roman city. And uh, what had been happening was the Jews had spread out throughout the Roman Empire. And as the gospel went out, many of these Jews came to believe that Jesus was in fact the fulfillment of all the Messianic prophecies. He was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. So they became Christians. And for the first couple of generations of Christians, they were always Jews. In fact, uh, for at least 20 years, uh, Christianity was actually seen as a, a Jewish sect. But then what started to happen is the gospel started going to non-Jews, to Greeks and to Gentiles and to Romans. And that started happening in Colossae. Now what started happening was, and we've covered some of these issues, is that Jews came from their background and their understanding of what the law was, what the Bible was, uh, what you can and cannot eat, what you can and cannot celebrate, what you can and cannot do, what you can and cannot wear. And now a, a Greek Christian was getting saved and the Jews were trying to convert him, not to Christ, but to all of these laws. But the Romans and the Greeks and the Gentiles, they also came from a background. They had their poets. They had the food that they liked. They had the clothes that they liked. They had the songs that they liked. And what has started to happen in all of these early churches, not only this church, but you can read the entire New Testament. It's just happening in every single church. Church of Rome, Church of Ephesus, Church of Philippi, Church of Colossae, is that these Jewish Christians were having a bit of a showdown with the non-Jewish Christians. And this is all around non-essential issues. And so in every single one of these books, Paul raises it. And this is where we arrive today. So let's read together. Colossians, just one verse. Colossians chapter three, verses 11. Here, I love the first word. Here, in our church, in our gathering, in our life groups, around our tables, here on a Sunday morning. Here, 
There is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and is in all. And I decided against putting any points up on the screen or any pictures because I want this verse to kind of burn itself into your mind. So that as I'm speaking, you're just gonna look up to the screen and you're gonna see the awesome truth of these few words and how relevant it is to us here in 2019 as well. Now, before we go on, I wanna speak quickly into one of the many dynamics that is at play when Jesus is building his church. The church is not man's solution to anything. The church is not the Pope's idea. The church is not the Baptist's or the Charismatic's idea. It was Jesus' idea. He said, I will build my church. And as we study this thing and what the scriptures have to say about the church, what we very quickly realize is that the church is not so much this meeting time from 9.30 to 11 on a Sunday, even though we say things like come to church or what happened in church, what we very quickly realize is the church is far bigger than that. In fact, the church is even more than just a bunch of people, because we often say people are the church. That is true. It's more than just a bunch of people who come together to sing a bunch of songs and listen to me shout at you. All right? What the church is in essence is individuals who have together come into a new identity in Christ. They have laid down their old identity. They have realized the frailty of their sin, the frailty of their identity. They have been redefined by who Jesus is. And that moment we call salvation because Jesus takes on their sin and they take on His righteous life. It doesn't stop there though. That's just the opening page. Because then what happens with all of these individual people is that Jesus puts His presence into them. So we say things like we are in Christ and Christ is in us. All right, and that is what defines the church. A bunch of individuals that this has happened to and then we work out what does it mean to live this out. We work that out together. Which is why throughout the whole Old Testament there's assumption that the church is always a together people. And part of what that means is when Jesus is building His church, one of the things He is doing is He's wanting to show the spiritual powers and He's wanting to show the world, this is who I am. How do you know who I am? Look at what I'm doing in and through my church. And one of the things He wants to show the world is that if you look at my church, I am not divided. And if Christ is not divided, that means we should not be divided. And what we're gonna to discover today is that the church or the Christian gospel is available to all people. And as all people come into Christ, they find a new identity in Him. That is now who they are together in Christ. But again, we come in with our old ways of thinking. We come in with our old prejudices. And sometimes we put Jesus secondary to some of these other patterns of thinking and the challenge is gonna be, if we truly believe the gospel, are we gonna be willing to change some of these ways of thinking and these behaviors? So if we look at this verse, what we see is different, but good. There are Greeks and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, guardians, slaves free, Christ is all and Christ is in all. 
And what we see here is uh, two categories of people. There are at least two categories. We can talk about more. But just for today, two categories that make so much sense to us in South Africa, June 2019. And the first category that we see here, or a distinction, are ethnic distinctions. We've already spoken about how the Jews saw themselves as superior because they had the law, they had Moses. The Romans would have seen themselves as superior because they had the military might of Rome behind them. And as these two groups of people were coming together, each thought that the other was uh, inferior to themselves. And that created great difficulty and conflict in the church. And I love the way Paul just so quickly undermines that. He says, no, 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 but Christ is all. That's his way of saying, guys, these differences, some of them are real and some of them are sinful and some of them are just different but good. But... What is most important is that Christ is all and Christ is in all. I just want you to stop for five seconds. Just look around the room. And it might be awkward, right? Guys, if you see a lady you haven't seen before, just a little bit of a wink as well. <laughs> just look around the room. Really, look around the room. And just in your mind, have these words in your mind. Christ is all and Christ is in all. Everyone you're looking at. They are in Christ if they are a Christian and Christ is in them. And Paul is saying, when it comes to these differences, that is what really matters. See, here's what's gonna challenge every single one of us. And I guarantee you that at some level, this is still going to be true of you. Even if you've been trying to be on a journey of having Christ transform your heart, at some level, this is still gonna be true. And it is this. Our natural tendencies is to see Christ and the gospel through the lens of our cultural identity. And the challenge is to see our cultural identity through the lens of Christ and the gospel. Stephen, what on earth does that mean? Okay, here's a little thing to think about. J.D. Greer, who writes about this and speaks about this really, really well in challenging ways, he says, think about this in terms of three races. Think about the race you were born into as your first race. That's the race of your family, the race of your ethnic culture, all right? Then think of every other race as your second race. And then think of the third race as your unity in Christ. Now, what it means to come to faith in Christ is not to lay down your first race, to cease being European, to cease being closer, to cease being a Zulu. We don't lay that down. Number two, we don't just simply adopt another culture. That's what kind of happened with some of the early British missionaries. They were like, here, you're a Christian now. Wear clothes like me, all right? And they adopted not a Christian culture, but a British culture, which is strange. So that isn't what happens either. But what does happen is as we become primarily affected by our third race, we don't let go of our first race. We don't adopt a second race but we prioritize our identity in Christ. See, what happens is, doesn't matter who you are, what culture you come from, what background you have, there are certain things in your culture that the gospel is going to confront. And the gospel is gonna confront different issues in different cultures. Now, if you look at Jesus through the lens of your culture, you're gonna say, no, 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 but my culture says this. And you're gonna live in a disobedience to the gospel. But if you prioritize your identity in Christ, you are able 
to critique your culture and say, actually, this is not the gospel and I choose to not live in this way. On the other hand, the gospel is going to affirm certain parts of our cultures and say, this is beautiful. This is wonderful. Celebrate that. And therefore, the picture of heaven is not just a bunch of gray people, but it is every tribe, every tongue, singing in their languages around the throne, the best of every culture. See, what I think the kingdom should be is not like a box of smarties, where we are all somehow in the same box of fun, but we're unaffected by one another. Believe what the gospel is calling us to in verses such as this, is to be like a stew. And I really like a good stew, where the best of me flavors you. The best of you flavors me. And as a result of, and I don't know if this analogy breaks down, kind of the gravy of Jesus, I, you know, I don't know. But as a result of us being cooked together in this new identity, this new people group defined by our third race, we don't see it being potato or beef, but we celebrate that. But what's even more important is that we are a beautiful stew, right? One of the ways we see this is in the person of Peter. Now, one of the reasons we love Peter is because he's most like us, because he just tends to say things before thinking and do things before engaging his brain. Um, and uh, as Peter, this is after the resurrection of Jesus, as Peter was going about his business and he was a church leader already, um, the, the Spirit comes to Peter and says, hey, Peter, I want you to take the gospel to a Gentile. I want you to go into their home, sit down with them, eat with them and share the gospel. Now, Peter was taught to be a good Jewish boy. And like all good Jewish boys, he was taught, you never go into the home of a Gentile. And you definitely don't sit down and eat with them. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Weren't some of us taught that? There are certain cultures that you don't go into their home of. You don't sit and eat with them. You don't engage with them around the same table. So Peter, even as a church leader, he showed up some of his kind of lingering racist tendencies and he was refused. No, Lord, I refuse to do that. And the Lord had to speak to him three times. And eventually, I'm guessing with a bit of a fat bottom lip, eventually Peter relented and said, okay, I'll go do that. So he goes to the home of a guy called Cornelius, a Gentile. He gets welcomed into his home. They sit down, they have a meal, shares the gospel with them. And the Spirit of the Lord comes down onto that place. You see, as the Lord was confronting Peter's racist tendencies, he didn't just simply stop at, Peter, stop hating Gentiles. He says, you need to move way beyond that. You need to get to a place where you are going to eat their food. All right, there are going to be prawns around that table. There's going to be bacon and all these wonderful things that you were taught never to eat. But the name of unity and the name of the gospel, I command you to eat that food. All right? And in doing that, you can have genuine fellowship and the power of God can potentially create a new third race in that very home. And in the same way, God is challenging us to do the same. So that's the first distinction, ethnic distinctions. The second distinction that comes out of these verses is in this little phrase, slave nor free, slave nor free. Now for some of you, you haven't heard a thing I've said because you've just seen that five letter word, slave on the screen. You see, if you know anything about African colonial and Western history is that this is one of the most embarrassing 
uh, shameful moments of our history where, where people based on their race were pretty much kidnapped, treated like animals, and then other races were made wealthy off the backs of these people. And, and to say that our history or our present rather is complex because of that is an understatement. And you've ever had tried to have a discussion with anyone about it, you know that, man, just uh, tempers flare very, very quickly. But part of the issue is this. So we see the word slave. And immediately the first thing that comes to mind are the movies, the documentaries, the history books. And it seems like Paul doesn't have an issue with that. In fact, that is very true. Uh, Just before the the abolition of slavery, there were preachers in South Africa and in the United States and in the UK and just preaching that God is for slavery. Then there were other preachers saying that God is against slavery. So what's going on here? Now, what do we need to do with this topic? And in fact, this is something we need to learn to do with every topic, is that instead of looking at the Bible through our 21st century lenses, we need to learn to take those off and put on the lens of first century Roman living. And what, when Paul used the word slave, I mean, slavery as we knew it was kind of 1700 years to come. So when Paul used the word slave, what did he mean by it? And while it definitely wasn't a perfect system, it's very different to what you and I have kind of seen in the movies and the History Channel and in our history books. Um, If you had to go to Rome in the middle of the first century, you would have encountered one third, if not up to 50% of the population would have been slaves. Now in modern slavery, it is race-based. It is people from colonial nations coming in and kidnapping people, taking them elsewhere. In in the Roman times, there was no such thing as race-based slavery. Again, in modern slavery, it's, it's kind of, you know, we treat you like an animal, you're property, we get to dispose of you, uh, there's no dignity there, definitely no pay. And in the Roman system, slaves were paid. In fact, the closest thing in our current day to Roman slavery is your job. I know some of you are like, amen, my job absolutely feels like slavery. <laughs> it's not exactly the same, but it's the closest thing for it. So in, in, in first century slavery, you could become incredibly wealthy. You could have influence. You could be a magistrate. You could be a sea captain. You could be a teacher. And, and what could eventually happen is you could buy yourself out of slavery. Many people opted not to because the lifestyle was so good. Now that is not true of modern slavery. And in fact, uh, many people actually chose to intentionally embrace a lifestyle of slavery in order to work themselves through the system and eventually become fully-fledged Roman citizens. So by no means was the system perfect, but it's very different to what comes to mind when you and I say slaves. But Paul is saying regardless, coming into the same church on a Sunday morning, one day is gonna be a master coming through the one door and coming through the other door is gonna be his slave. And what are we going to do about that? Because the default is going to be, I, as his master or his employer, am better than he. And Paul is saying, here, there is no such distinction. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave nor free. Here, we are all equal. 
Because Christ is all and Christ is in all. Because here, on one hand, we all recognise our depravity. We all recognise our need for a saviour. We all recognise that there are sinful habits and things in my life that I cannot beat on my own. I will never be able to achieve standards of heaven on my own. And therefore we are all in need of Christ. And on the other hand, we are all of such incredible value. Slave owner and slave, Christ died for you. You have infinite value. You are created in the image of God and Christ is in you. And that is what unites us. And so the question is for us, when we walk through these doors on a Sunday or we come to Life Group or we are anywhere, Mall of the South or wherever, what are our default patterns of thinking? What are our default human responses? I'd argue for most of us, it is to somehow interpret my ways and my cultures as superior to other ways and other cultures. That probably goes both ways to some degree. So when I walk through these doors, I want to ask you an honest question. This is going to highlight to what degree do you truly believe the gospel? And the question is this, and I'll ask you for the courage to go through this mental exercise with me. Is there anything in you that you believe makes you superior to anybody else? Do you believe somehow your bank balance, your looks, your intelligence, your clothing, your social network somehow makes you superior or more valuable than anybody else? But I also want to flip that. When you walk in here on a Sunday morning, is there anything in you? Maybe your lack, maybe your lack of, you know, a big glaring red mark on your bank account. Maybe it's your skin color, maybe it's your background. And for whatever reason, when you walk in through those doors, you feel not superior, but inferior. And I would say the gospel is good news to both sides. The gospel humbles us because it's all about Jesus. And it doesn't matter who you are, you need Him. And what He wants for you is not just to deal with your sin, but He wants you to live in Him and He wants to lead you to paths of life. And He wants to show the world what this third race looks like. And He wants to say, you know what I am like? Look at my church. That humbles us, but it frees us, right? And also for those who walk in with a sense of inferiority, the gospel says to you, you know how valuable you are? Look at what is paid for you so that Jesus could restore the image of God in you. And that puts us on equal footing because Christ is all and Christ is in all. Now, I want to get very real for the next couple of minutes. Unfortunately, in the last eight and a half years of being a pastor here, I have had way too many conversations that I would ever have dreamed about having about people who have come into this environment, be it on a Sunday, a life group, or just encountered us somewhere in our homes or uh, at Ball of the South, wherever, on the sports field, where people, by engaging us, have not experienced the gospel. 
I'm not saying they haven't heard the gospel. Craig and I are trying to be very faithful about preaching the gospel. But people have come in here and have confided in me. Some of them are here. Some of them are no longer with us because they haven't experienced the transforming power of the gospel. And so I have had more people than I would like to have heard come to me and say, Stephen, I have felt excluded from this community based on my race. I have felt excluded from this community based on how I look. I've felt excluded from this community because people have looked at me and looked down on me because of my background. I've felt excluded from this community because I don't dress like them. I've got tattoos or I've got different markings on me. And I've been judged because of that and looked down because of that. And I want to say, as clearly as I can say it, if we are Christians, this is not a peripheral issue. This is a gospel issue. This is a central issue. Go read your Bible. It comes up in every single one of the letters of the New Testament. And in fact, let me show you why it's a gospel issue. Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 7, he says, accept one another, just as Christ accepted you. And the implication is this, if you are battling to accept other people, you probably haven't fully understood the basis upon which you've been accepted. Man, because if we understand we've been forgiven much, we can forgive much. In fact, in the Old Testament, whenever God writes to His people, the Israelites, and He says, listen guys, you're my people, but listen, don't forget the foreigner. Don't forget the alien. Don't forget the poor among you. Every single time God writes to them, He says this, guys, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget you were slaves in Egypt. Don't forget you were foreigners. Don't forget you were disenfranchised. And you never got to Israel on the strength of your own systems and your wits and your intelligence and your power. The only reason why you're walking around this land is because I saved you. I brought you out of slavery. Now, as someone who understands that, demonstrate that by treating people in similar ways. Then we get to the New Testament. Accept one another then. Just as Christ has accepted you. Colossians chapter one and halfway through chapter two. If this is true, then here in this place, there is no distinction. And so I want to say, here, Riverside Community Church, June 2019, there is no distinction. And we will not tolerate non-gospel behavior. Do you want to know, uh, this would have made for a very interesting church meeting. We know of the Apostle Paul who wrote so much of the New Testament, the Apostle Peter who wrote some of the New Testament. Do you know they had a public showdown? And do you know what the issue was? It was this. Peter, who was invited into Cornelius' home, still didn't quite get it. The moment came where there was a church meeting and there were Jews sitting and eating on one side. There were non-Jews sitting and eating on the other side. Peter walks in the room, Paul notices him, and Peter goes and sits down with the Jews. You're like, but you know, swirt, swirt, right? He's his mates, he's his Mikeys. 
Paul confronts him publicly in a church meeting. Do you know what he says? He says this, you are being disobedient to the gospel. To the gospel. The only public confrontation that we know of in the entire New Testament between leaders. It's around this issue. So I want to say with Paul here, Riverside Community Church, we are defined by Christ is all. And Christ is in all. So now just to help us move forward, because I know many of us are going to be struggling. Well, how do I do that? I mean, I'm maybe starting to become convinced that this is not a side issue. This is a major issue for us. Well, I want to just use some of the categories that we've learned to think through from the last few weeks to help us think about this issue. So the first one is our identity. Primarily, do you look at your culture through the lens of Christ or do you look at Christ through the lens of your culture? And obviously, for us who are Christians, it is for us to intentionally prioritize our new identity in Christ. This is who I am. Christ is all and Christ is in all. Number two, we need to embrace new desires. What do your natural desires say? Now, there's probably very few people in this room whose natural desires are ones of hatred towards people who are different but good. But maybe our desires are like Peter, but I still enjoy my Mikeys. I still enjoy my peeps. I still enjoy people who look like me and sound like me and eat like me. And I don't know if I can eat Mopani worms and those kinds of things. I, I like being a box of Smarties. I don't want to be a stew. And if this is the gospel, and if this is how Christ has accepted us, it is to recognize that your heart's tendency and to lay that down Say, God, transform my heart. Give me new desires. New patterns of thinking. What is your internal dialogue? I've heard this too many times to, 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 to you know, I'm not a racist, but how do you, I don't care about anybody else, how do you finish that sentence? How do you justify your behavior? And again, if this is true, if this is on the basis upon which Christ has accepted us and he's called to a new, be a new kind of humanity, a new kind of people that shows the world what he is like, what thinking do I need to let go of and embrace? Number four, what do I need to put off? What behaviors do I need to put off? What language do I need to put off? What ways of speaking, what ways of behaving do I need intentionally to go back to the last few chapters? Kill, get rid of, right? Put to death. It's violence, it's gory, it's blood and guts. This must die in me with earnestness. And then what behaviors am I gonna put on? Again, I wanna end with the gospel and then I wanna pray. Think about Jesus, who had equality with God. I'm just gonna paraphrase Philippians chapter two. He had equality with God. He had everything he needed. He had the full comforts of heaven. He was fully loved, fully embraced for who he was. He had been experiencing eternal love forever. 
And in order to save us, He didn't just beam down some sort of incantation. He entered our world. He took on our limitations. He took on our sinful flesh. He was tempted like every single one of us. And in this world, not that perfect world, in this world, he lived the life you and I fail to live every single day. And when he died, he defeated the penalty of our sin so that when you and I enter Christ, we trust him, we get to be called sons and daughters of the Father. We don't have to fear judgments. We don't have to fear wrath. We don't have to fear punishments because Jesus was punished on our behalf. And as we are in Christ, not only are we saved, get out of jail free card. I want God's blessing, not his transformation. No, now we receive his spirits and he leads us to live like him. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that saves and that's the gospel that transforms. So Father, I pray that it is Jesus who is all and who is in all that that idea would penetrate us in new ways this morning. I pray it would transform us. I I pray our vision and our understanding of what the gospel is and what the gospel means would forever change us. I pray for a renewed sense of gratitude for how you saved us. A renewed sense of insight for what the gospel is in fact. And maybe for some of us, it means having a long, hard look at what have I believed up to now? Because I've believed a safe version of the gospel. And maybe some of us are being confronted with the truth of it. And do I believe the gospel? Father God, I, I, I don't pray for that to be a condemning moment for us. I pray for that to be an invitation. An invitation into the kingdom. An invitation into Christ. An invitation into paths of life. And Father, as you deal with very tricky issues in us, especially in our nation, in our world, would the gospel become the basis for our transformation? Would your presence in us be the life that breathes the change in us as we submit to you? And so Father God, Holy Spirit, affirm in us our identity in Christ. Transform our desires. Renew us as we transform our thinking. Help us kill sinful and broken patterns of behavior. And as we put on Christ, I pray that we might feel like that is truly what life is about. Church, that is repentance. I want you to take notice of what is going on in your heart right now as you're before God. And continue this with him during the week. Life groups is always an opportunity for us to continue to talk about this and get real and just get transparent and really allow us to be surrounded by people who are on the same journey as us. So Father God, we are not just a bunch of individuals. We are Christ. We are the body of Christ. And you are not divided, Lord. And we thank you that here, 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 there is no distinction. 
So God, unite us with these bonds of peace given to us by the Spirit, your presence amongst us. And God, may this place here, our homes, our workplaces, be transformed because we are transformed by the gospel. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.